0: Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
1: A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners Or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and we're recording this on June 23rd, 2021. Today, we are joined by former prosecutor and TV host Lonnie Coombs, a regular and a friend of this program. Lonnie, welcome back.
2: Thank you. It's so nice to be back. It feels like it's been a while.
1: It has. We're so excited that you're back. Everybody's so busy. I know you're working on a lot of projects. I know we're going to talk about that at the end of the program. But Lonnie, I have an update on a case that I know you care about. We're going to talk about our cases in a second. But this is something that we covered two weeks ago. And so many of you listeners and viewers were like outraged by what happened. And we actually have an amazing update which we don't usually get a little bit of justice, right? That is the the elusive thing we're always trying to get. So 13-year-old Charlie Funes is is a girl who says that she was attacked in PE class from behind, and when she fell, she couldn't brace herself because the girl who allegedly pushed her and, and, and tripped her is someone who's been bullying her for months. So Charlie lost her front teeth. She had bruises and scrapes on her face and on her body. The other girl was given two days suspension for her alleged crime. And Charlie and her parents were outraged that nobody was doing anything because she had to get an MRI and a CT scan and all of this stuff. It could have been really serious. So we had them on the program, Lonnie, two weeks ago. We had Charlie and her mom talking about what it took to get attention and their fight for justice that they were really frustrated. All right, here is the update. The Grundy County State Attorney, who is the prosecutor in this case in Illinois, has opened a criminal investigation in juvenile court. The other girl, who is 14 years old, has been charged with aggravated battery, and it is Mm. indeed going to court in July.
2: Mm. Incredible. It's amazing, Anna, and you know, just looking over the history of law enforcement's attitudes toward these kinds of cases, they would never have thought of filing a case years ago. But things have changed. And also the fact that you put a spotlight on it, and that they were willing to speak up, um, things are changing. And it's wonderful that victims are being able to speak up and have some somebody listen to them and do something about it.
1: Absolutely. And they were so frustrated because the police did come out. The police found the video that allegedly shows the other girl intentionally tripping Charlie. It's not like there wasn't some evidence. And one thing I want to be absolutely clear about before we get to our cases is that Charlie and her mother, that the Funya's family doesn't want anything terrible to happen to the other girl. They're not, you know, out for vengeance. What they are asking for is is to get help for that other girl, because she's allegedly had some other issues, and to have some justice, to have some consequences for your actions that actually fit your crime, not just a two day, you're out of school, and everything's gonna be okay.
2: Yeah, and for people to be able to see this behavior is not okay, right? On a bigger scale, it's not okay. For those of you thinking about doing this kind of bullying in the future, it's not okay, something will happen. And once again, the power of a video, right? The power of a video. If there was no video, who knows if this would have happened.
1: Exactly. They may not have believed Charlie. They may not have believed that she was attacked from behind and that she's been bullied for months. So many of you weighed in on this case. And as I always say, it is the outraged and angry chorus. When you all speak your mind, you speak up and you say it's not okay People do hear you, so I applaud all of you, and so many of you shared your feelings about what it was like to be bullied or that your children were being bullied, so I thank you all for sharing those experiences. We are seeing change happen because of your outrage, and when this case is settled, we're going to have Charlie and her mom back on another episode, so I just wanted to share with everyone some good news finally, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get to our cases, Lonnie. Boy, are they disturbing. (laughs) But then again, that's what what True Crime Daily is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so our cases this week. There are some new court documents that have been released in that really disturbing Sarah Lawrence College sex cult case. This is where the guy pretended to be a therapist. He was the dad to one of the other girls and started manipulating her classmates and He allegedly drove these girls to suicide and prostitution. It's one of those like really sick, brainwashed kind of cases.
2: Yeah, very depraved person here.
1: Oof, very dark, with with amazing political connections, which, right, we're going to get to. But first, a mother and a son from a prominent South Carolina family have been shot and killed on their sprawling estate. The timing of this is really suspicious because the son was awaiting trial in connection with a 2019 boating accident that left a 19-year-old woman dead. Okay, also the other thing about this case is not only is this family prominent, but there are all these mysterious and suspicious deaths that have taken place either near them, around them, in their families, so, wow. Okay, it's like a black cloud over this family. Let's get to the details of this one. On June 7th, a 911 call comes in a little after 10. Police find Margaret Maggie Murdaw, who's 52 years old, and her 22-year-old son, Paul, dead on their 1,700-acre property. I mean, this had a hunting lodge. It's like all the stuff that rich people have, right? It's very, uh-huh. very, very Southern. Um, the Island Packet reports that the times of death have been narrowed to between nine and nine thirty. The victims were shot with a shotgun or an assault rifle. Okay, so that sounds very, very violent, right? Yeah, very yeah. violent. We don't have details about close range or anything like that. Now, Alex, who would be the the son, the father, and the husband. To the two victims, right? So Alex Murdaugh, Maggie's husband and Paul's father, is the one who discovered them. Now, here's where things get even crazier. But three days after this double homicide, the patriarch of the family dies. Now, he had been ill. He had been ill. 81-year-old Randolph Murdaugh, who is Maggie's father-in-law and the grandpa to the victim— He dies in the hospital, and what's very interesting here is, and Lonnie, you'll explain this to us, most people are killed by people they know, right? And while no one has been named a suspect or a person of interest here, um, some eyes have been focused on the husband-father, but he was at the hospital with his own father who was dying, so he has an alibi. Now, that's probably just coincidence, but that's a lot of death in three days.
2: Yeah, it is. A a lot of bodies, right? But there was a lot of things going on in this family at that time. As you said, Paul, the son, had been arrested and charged. He was indicted with this boating uh, accident where a young girl was killed. Uh, And he was pending on those charges. No trial day had been set, but it was pending. And uh, apparently, there were a lot of people that were really upset about that, obviously. Um, It was a, a party situation where he was on their family fancy boat with a bunch of his friends and they had all been drinking and partying and then he was driving and drove into a piling and everyone got ejected and a number of them were injured and one of them never came up. They couldn't find her, couldn't find her for weeks. And then finally her body was found. And so you know the family said that at the time he was getting death threats, which you know is kind of understandable. I mean in this town, this family is like an icon politically and in the legal world, and it appeared that there were some things that had gone on in that case and the investigation that they felt wasn't fair. And so the question was, was this killing of Paul and Maggie connected somehow to the fact that this case was pending against Paul? Now, the, as far as the the, um, the family patriarch that you talked about who passed away in the hospital, he was apparently, you know, on his deathbed during this time. You can understand that something as tragic and as horrific as Having his daughter in law and his grandson being shot and killed on their property would, would, would hasten that. And the fact that he, you know, died apparently of natural causes three days later it, it is a huge coincidence, but appears to have, you know, a justification, a reason for it.
1: There appears to be, based on published reports, some some resentment toward this family, whether they got special treatment because of their position and their pol- position in the legal world. Um, As well, because as you mentioned, um, you know, Paul was charged with being intoxicated and driving that boat at the time when Mallory Beach was killed and her body like, you, you know, wasn't found for a week, which is also excruciating for that town and for Mallory's family. What's interesting is that people who were on that party boat that night say they say that not only was Paul drunk, but that when he did get drunk, he would become very belligerent, and that supposedly, according to witnesses who were on that boat that night, that he was being really nasty. He he was arguing with his own girlfriend, and he even spit in her face. You know, that that kind of action tells you a lot about a human being and how that human being treats and sees other human beings. Yeah. So already you you have this this picture of privilege, this this picture of, you know, very bratty kids, actually. I mean, that's a bratty way to act. Um, so, so you've got that going on in the background. And then you have this family that, you know, they've been prosecutors and attorneys in that part of the state for more than 100 years. Like the Murdoch family means yeah. something there. And we all know, you know, big patriarchal families where the name means something in a community. But this really does when you're talking about them being either attorneys or prosecutors for decades, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, they've got connections with law enforcement. Um, They know everyone probably that's um, investigating the case. There were allegations that You know, when the police went to the hospital after the accident and tried to interview people that they were stopped from doing that, that there were no blood alcohol tests or drug tests run on anyone, including Paul. Um, Allegedly, they said because of the family influence, um, you know, they weren't able to talk to Paul for a number of days until he had his lawyer in place. So there were, there are a lot of things that people were saying, this just isn't fair. This isn't right. But on the other hand, this is a family of lawyers, right? All the way back, father, grandfather, grandfather, they had been, as you said, that the County prosecutor there, the solicitor for, for decades. Um, and they not only did the father Alex work as a part-time solicitor, but he also had a law firm. So, you know, he, he was covering all the bases there as far as the legal fields. In fact, they had to find an outside prosecutor essentially come in and try this case. And a number of judges recused themselves because they said they were so connected to this family.
1: Try getting justice under those circumstances. If you are the victim's family, yeah. you have to feel like you're up against a massive wall of privilege and connections. And and frankly, <laughs> you are because of the positions they hold now um, we do want to hear a little bit from the family, that, that this is a prominent family, but they um, really did something extraordinary. They had an exclusive interview with Good Morning America and Randy and John Murda, who are the brothers of Alex. This would be the father, the man who just lost his wife and his child in this double homicide. And they address the issues of, is it possible that there could have been threats made against their nephew? But they also deal with the issue of privilege.
3: Here's the clip. I see words like dynasty used and power. And I don't know exactly how people use those words, but we're just regular people. And we're hurting just like they would be hurting if this had happened to them.
1: So Lonnie, the Daily Mail has done some digging on this family, and they have come up with some mysterious deaths, which I think help when you step back, look at a bigger picture of like, what the heck's been going on around here? Like, my feeling is everybody at the Piggly Wiggly is is talking about this family all week long at the checkout line. It's like, did you hear this? And do you remember this? And do you remember when? So here are the remember whens. So the Daily Mail says that in 2018, the Murdoch's housekeeper tripped and fell to her death. Yeah. Death. The father, Paul, settled a wrongful death claim for $500,000. There's not an awful lot of information as to how she died, where she died. But, you know, maybe if there weren't a double homicide currently being investigated, and the son were not, who's been murdered, had not been under investigation himself. Maybe this might seem like oh, an isolated tragic incident. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that does that concern you at all, or well, what do you? Th-
2: you know, it's interesting. And and you said Paul. I think you meant Alex, the father. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, he's the one who paid it out. Um, I think you know eyebrows are raised when one there really are no details you don't know where she died how she died you know when it's a trip and fall was there another person involved but that was all you know hush hushed uh, which happens a lot when there's a, a payout like that um that's part of the settlement and apparently you know half a million dollars that's a big settlement um so that's one thing right when you hear um that there's this son paul who has a temper Right, he gets angry. He gets violent when he drinks. In fact, his friends who testified at the grand uh, jury indictment said they actually have a nickname for him, Timmy, which is the personality that comes out when he's when he's drinking. And not only did he spit on his girlfriend that night, but he slapped her in the face. I mean, it's clear that he gets very abusive during this time. Um, and then he turns around, and he, and he and he strips down. They say he takes his you know shirt off, and that's something he commonly does. And then he drives this boat, you know, right into a piling, whether it was on purpose or just very reckless. Um, that's clearly very uh risky, reckless behavior. And so you see that once, and then you see the housekeeper who works in the home where this young man lives, and you don't hear any details about it, but there's a big payout and you start to wonder, hmm, was there anyone else involved? So, you know, isolated by itself, I don't know, but then you're starting to see a pattern here, right?
1: And also, who would know the family secrets better than the housekeeper? Season hears everything. Okay, Lonnie, so there's the mysterious death of the housekeeper. But now there is another death. And this one is very intriguing. So, the Daily Mail reports that in 2015, a gay teenager named Stephen Smith was found dead on the side of the road. He was a victim of a hit and run. Apparently, he had run out of gas left his car, abandoned it, started walking on the side of the road, and that is when he was hit. And that's pretty much all we know. We, there is no suspect in this case at all. So here's what's interesting. The Daily Mail says that police started receiving tips during that hit and run that maybe they should look into Paul and his brother Buster apparently Buster may have also helped to provide some of the alcohol that was in that boating accident, whole separate situation. So, you know, the Daily Mail and their sourcing reviewed some documents that would back up that at least some calls came in. But tips could be anything. It could be someone trying to um, send police the wrong way. It it could be a vengeful, spiteful thing. Who knows? So it, it never went Anywhere. But here's what I find very interesting. So the Daily Mail is now saying that because of the double homicide, they are now looking into these other mysterious deaths to see if there's the possibility that the murder was somehow an act of vengeance for this privileged family where there is, you know, a black cloud and carnage behind them. Mm-hmm. Here's what is really insulting. Stephen's mother, the boy who was killed in the car accident, gets a call from investigators. So she's thinking, oh, Lord, finally, there's a break in my son's case. No. Instead, they ask Stephen's mom, hey, do you think there could be any possible connection or do you know anything or could this be vengeance, the fact that, you know, Maggie and her son um, were just killed? And she said, what a slap in the face. Here I am thinking that you're going to help me with my son's death, but you're calling me to see if I can help you with your double homicide of this prominent family. How dare you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. She's been fighting for six years, she says to try and get law enforcement to do something about her son's case. And she does believe that Paul has something to do with it. She's said that. And she actually has a former highway patrol um, officer, who I believe looked at the case also, who, who agrees with her. And together they've been working, trying to get an investigation done, trying to get something to happen. And after all those years of not getting any response from law enforcement, the time that they call her is when the person that she thinks is responsible for the death of her son ends up dead, I can see how that would be very offensive to her.
1: Oh, absolutely. She called it a slap in the face. I say it's a dagger in the heart. It it, it really is.
2: But the other interesting thing is, is it also shows you where law enforcement's head is that they may be connected somehow to the murder. So that's also an interesting twist to think about, okay, where are they going on the double murder investigation?
1: And it is possible, as they investigate that, that maybe now they are forced, by circumstances, to get more information on these other mysterious deaths. And that in itself may reveal what happened and who may have been involved, even if, let's say, the people involved, and we don't know that they are, may be dead. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But, wow, it's like some dirty secrets are finally going to literally be excavated. Because yeah. of this.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but it, it really yeah. makes you feel it's you yeah. know, I it's I was it all up. Yeah. And it's it's ugly what's back there. I mean, this family's got a a lot of um things that they don't want made public because they did have a kid that seemed to constantly be getting into some trouble and clearly was okay. in trouble, at least legally for um at least charged in Mallory's death. Yeah. So um Paul did plead not guilty, of course, that case is not going to go i mean you you can't really do anything, can you in a case like that if the if the suspect, the person charged, dies, what happens with Mallory's death investigation?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean there's no one to prosecute right he's He's not there, but I think I, I believe I read somewhere that they're going to continue on with the investigation, which I thought was interesting,
1: yeah. That is really interesting. And the people who were on the boat that night, they say that they have voluntarily already submitted their DNA so they can be ruled out from the double homicide that police are currently investigating because they don't want any part of that. Because there is a lot of talk of, did someone just lose it and say, that's it? I've had it with this family. Or, and this could still fit that. Or were they killed by someone they know? Or was there a heated family argument that took place? We well,
0: don't
2: I think, know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there, and I said double murder, but that's actually could be wrong. It could be a murder-suicide, right? Because both guns that they said were used to kill the victims were left at the crime scene, uh, which is an interesting move. And one of them could have lost their temper, killed the other one, and then decided to take their own life. And I'm not saying which is which either. So... That's always a a possibility as well. It's interesting because the police are saying after they cleared the father, Alex, they've said there's no person of interest right now. They haven't made any arrest. And they've told the public that they're not in danger. Which is not something you say if you think there's a killer out there on the loose, right?
1: Right. But hold on a second. Generally, if you suspect murder-suicide... Don't police generally say this early on?
2: Yes, unless it's a family that, you know, doesn't want to be tainted by that um, that type of label and, and doesn't, you know, has power to sort of put a lid on it. I mean, who knows? Who knows what's going on there? But that's definitely something. And it's interesting because in none of the reports have they brought up the possibility that it could be a murder-suicide. And yet you have two bodies late at night on the property, happened very quickly. I mean, between 9 and 9.30 and by 10 o'clock, Alex is there, finds them, calls police, right? So it happened fairly soon just before Alex got home and both the guns are still left there. So it was guns that could be taken by the killer or killers or whoever it was if they didn't want to be you know, li- linked to the killing. So um, it, it is definitely a possibility that needs to be looked at.
1: That's really interesting. You know, I hadn't even thought about it. I was so distracted by, you know, what's going on with this family and all the drama that I that it didn't even occur to me. Because I thought, wow, you, you could really buy into this whole, like, someone out there doesn't like this family and wanted to kill them. Yeah. But— You have a good point. The fact that the weapons were left there and that police are saying, no, we're not looking. But sometimes when police say, oh, no, we're not looking for anyone, it's their way of getting you to like be, oh, to get the killer or the suspected killer to kind of relax and start making some some mistakes.
2: Yeah, it could be, although they don't usually go so far to say is the public, the public doesn't need to be concerned as far as they're not in any danger. Right.
3: Mm hmm.
1: So. Very interesting. And one more thing on uh, Mallory Beach's death in that boating accident. Mallory's mom is suing the family, the Murdoch family, for wrongful death. So that's going to continue whether Mallory's criminal investigation goes forward or not, and if anybody else is charged there. This, to me, is one of the most interesting cases we've had in a while.
2: Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if they make any arrests.
1: Oh, my gosh, if there aren't, <laughs> and they don't call it a murder-suicide, they are they're going to be a lot more angry people. Mm-hmm. Our next case, Lonnie, is so disturbing on so many levels. And the other thing that bugs me about this is there were plenty of people that I believe in powerful positions who could have put a stop or intervened and didn't. So this is what gets me about this case. And here's what's also interesting. Like our last case, this is about privilege, power, and money. No way around it. So prosecutors have released new information in court records that were filed in Manhattan Federal Court. 61-year-old Lawrence Ray is the father of a Sarah Lawrence college student. He was indicted on charges of allegedly manipulating, abusing, and extorting his daughter's friends and other victims as part of a wider scheme that netted him more than a million dollars. And this happened over a decade, according to U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman. Now, here's what he allegedly did. Prosecutors say that Lawrence Ray forced some of his victims, so these are young college students, into prostitution by getting compromising information about them, and then threatening to make that information public. So if if they didn't do what he said, but that was only part of the manipulation. Prosecutors say that he treated these college students like sex slaves. Supposedly, there are graphic videos that he shot on his cell phone with these girls in demeaning and compromising and humiliating positions, and that was part of the evidence that the prosecutors say they have. Now, this is supposedly how it started. And for me, this is beyond. All right. So his daughter's going to an excellent college. Sarah Lawrence is a premier college on the East Coast. He reportedly moves in to his daughter's college dorm room. This is a man, (laughs) okay?
2: First of all, I don't get that right there. Let's just stop right there. Why did people think that it was okay for this man who had just gotten out of prison to move in and become essentially one of the roommates with his daughter and all of her roommates. I mean, and not just for a night, like he's not visiting and staying the night. He moves in. Didn't anyone have a problem with that? I mean, where were the college officials on that
1: one? Don't even get me started on that one, Lonnie, because the president of Sarah Lawrence actually made a statement and, and she said, you know, we're very surprised and shocked by this. She said, but we went back and we checked no one complained. No one filed a report. No one said that there was a man, a man, a grown man in his 50s, you know, living with with college students. And then she gave the excuse of, well, you know, it's kind of like a townhouse facility that the university runs. So probably no one would have noticed, give me a break. Because if no one notices that there is a grown man living with girls in a dorm, then you got some serious security problems Mm -hmm. at Sarah Lawrence.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Shocking. Again, privilege. Privilege, look the other way. Shocking, shocking, shocking. All right. So he moves into his daughter's dorm room, and this is when he starts recruiting her classmates. What's interesting is in everything I've read, Lonnie, we don't have a lot of information about her was she victimized too? Was she just a pawn? Was she participating? She's not charged in any way, but I'm just very curious about the daughter.
2: Yeah. Well, well for what I read about the history of the family and the relationship is, you know, early on the father and mother were getting a divorce. They were having conflict and she immediately sided with the father and was always standing up for the father, like his little soldier. And if he said anything bad about the mother. She agreed with it. I mean, she was, you know, sort of abusive to the mother for along with the father. And that continued on even when he went to prison Um, She stuck up for him. She was telling all her roommates how amazing he was and and bragging about all his his connections, his political connections and his, you know, military mottos and, you know, all of this discipline that he had taught her. And then when he got out, you know, she'd made him into this sort of superhero and said, hey, he's going to come stay with us for a while because he doesn't have a place to go. And apparently they all said, "Okay." so she's not charged. But she was clearly, you know, sort of his cheerleader and, and adored him.
1: Yeah. The whole thing is really freaky. It's very disturbing. So apparently what he would then do is he would befriend her classmates, her friends, and he would begin isolating them and brainwashing them, according to prosecutors. They say it was all psychological manipulation, so he could gain control, but he apparently gained control through what they describe as lengthy therapy sessions. So he would forced them to go, you know, on and on about their deepest problems. And that's how he would get family secrets and secrets on them. And, and kind of, he pretended, I mean, part of the allegations are that he pretended to be like a therapist, a mental health expert. And in doing so, you know, these sessions would go on for hours and they were grueling, but he was, that increased his ability to control them and also to mine them for information. They, the prosecutors describe it as these girls being under his spell. Those are the words they used.
2: Well, and I think, you know, the way they described when we first got there, he was kind of like the den father, right? He would cook for them. He would set up movie nights. He would, you know, set up these activities and, and they loved it. Remember, these are college kids who are away from home, maybe for the first time, feeling a little lonely and then they'd have these marathon, you know, sessions after they watched a movie, they're hanging out in the living room together, and they just start talking about personal things. And one girl said she just had a really horrible breakup. And he says, "Oh, I can help you with that. Let's have some therapy sessions. She's like, okay. And apparently, he can be very charming. And then there was another young man, and he was, you know, struggling with his sexuality and wondering, you know, what, what to do. And he's, I can help you with that. You know, so they go into it thinking it's all normal. And this this adult figure who apparently has this pedigreed background and knows all of these famous people and, you know, has been relied on by, you know, with politicians and law enforcement people have, you know, relied on him and his judgment. And they're like, oh, okay, well, he's going to help me with some therapy. And then it slowly, he's grooming them, right? It's like any, you know, predator. He's grooming them to look at him as a father figure and to think everything's okay. And then by the time he gets to the point where he's saying, I want you two to have sex together and I'm gonna watch you and critique you. They go along with it because they think it's part of their therapy, right?
1: Oh, and you know, they're still so young at this age. So young. They yeah. So young at this age. Yeah. Their brains haven't even finished forming yet. Right. So, what ends up happening is that some of these students or his victims or however you wanna describe mm-hmm. them attempt suicide. And then they require hospitalization. This is the new information that's coming out of the court record right now. And they say that, so here's this guy who was present before they were suicidal. Then the the prosecutors are wondering whether he planted a seed that made them vulnerable and and whether or not he may have even suggested suicide. I mean, all this is going to have to be determined in a court of law. But these are all of the things that are being investigated as part of this case. And then after the suicide attempt, these young people would need to be hospitalized. This guy would show up at the hospital and insert himself into their recovery as part of being a therapist or as part of their treatment. And the fact that anyone at any hospital permitted this to go on. So here we have the guy moving in to Sarah Lawrence. Should never have happened. Now we have the guy inserting himself. While they're hospitalized and then post recovery, I'm like, is nobody minding the store here? That yeah. this guy's just maneuvering through all of this.
2: Yeah, and some of the parents, there were, there were a couple of parents um, in these amongst these victims who were very active trying to save their children. They knew something was going on, and and some of them said when they went to the hospital after this suicide attempt. He was there and he would somehow wedge in between them and keep them from seeing or talking to their child. I mean, the lengths that he went to were so extreme. And like you said, there were other people around. There's the hospital administrator. Why didn't they speak up? Some of these parents went to one of the administrators of the college and said something. And essentially the response was, well, you know, they're over 18. There's nothing we can do. You know, they're making their own choices. So the parents, you know, were banging their heads against a wall trying to do something and no one was listening.
1: It's so disturbing, especially when when you can see it in retrospect, because then you can really get the context of it. As part of this charade, prosecutors say that Lawrence Ray allegedly went so far as to diagnose some of the victims and told them. Now, imagine you're a young person being told this, that they had borderline personality disorder. How damaging is this when you're already fragile? Plus Mm -hmm. now with the suicide attempts, plus the recovery. And now they're holding on to this guy because they think they need him. And the parents are worried because their children are in crisis. It's it's an awful, awful thing that these young people have been put through. Now, to add to the creepy factor, okay, he's creepy dad without question, right? No matter what, even if the man's not convicted of anything, he's creepy dad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. So here's the thing about him. He has a lot of powerful friends. According to the Daily News, he was the best man at the wedding of the former New York City Police Commissioner, Bernie Carrick. okay? That's not just anyone, your best man. The best man to the police commissioner. So he had entree, access, to all of the New York City political leaders, the New York Times has claimed that he may have organized crime connections. We have no idea if that's true. He clearly was politically connected. Now, the Bernie Kerik thing is just a little bit complicated, and I want to give everybody some context. This happened, so in 2010, which is about the time that a dad moves in to Sarah Lawrence, is when Bernie Carrick pleaded guilty to tax fraud and ends up serving three years, but he ends up getting pardoned by President Trump. So keep in mind that Creepy Daddy moves in when his buddy Bernie is having some serious legal issues of his own, and Daddy has just been released from prison for his own problems. Okay.
2: Well, well yes. And also, there are some reports, some allegations that the reason Bernie had all of those, I mean, he was way at the top, right, politically and, and career wise, and he had a massive fall. And some people blame that on Creepy Daddy. They say that they had a falling out, right? They were very close. And then when uh, Lawrence was having some legal issues of his own, he turned to Bernie and said, hey, help me out here. You know, you, you've you got all the connections, help me out. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't. You know, now I'm hobnobbing with the, the president or whoever, I can't. And, and so Larry was so mad that then he was the one who brought forth stuff that ended up toppling Bernie from his high pedestal all the way to the point where he was in prison. And they said at that point it was... This is all allegations, but they said that, um, you know, something sort of snapped in Larry and he went from being, you know, kind of like this guy who was connected to everybody and uh, sort of a manipulator charmer. They never knew if it was all true or not, um, to becoming more um, vengeful and sort of devious. And all of a sudden, all of his energy turned into, you know, focused on these students at Sarah Lawrence, sadly.
1: And think about it. Things are not going well in your life. All of a sudden you thought you were a powerful guy and maybe you're not. But in this tiny little world at Sarah Lawrence, you're king. You're the kingmaker, right? So if you need, if you live off of that vibe of being powerful and having people turn to you, then he replicated that. But with the saddest, most vulnerable people around, these aren't politicians. These aren't alleged criminals. These aren't people with money. These are kids.
2: Yeah, yeah. But not only was he controlling them, he was also getting money from them. He was also having sex with them. So he was, he was the king of his little kingdom right there and getting everything that he wanted.
1: Yeah, working them as prostitutes. So yeah, hes he needed a supply of money. So allegedly that was part of this scheme because he's also charged with racketeering. Now, none of this would have really been investigated unless it had become public, Again, another theme we're seeing, sometimes to get justice, you got to go public because the authorities may not be able to help you, especially if you're at the wedding of the authorities. You know, it's just, it's not not going to happen. So a magazine article is done. And in this magazine article from New York Magazine titled, The Stolen Kids of Sarah Lawrence, that's when the journalist kind of put it all out there. And that's when all of a sudden, Creepy Dad is revealed And then that leads to the snowball effect of all that's happened since then. So, you know, I I can't even imagine what people must have been thinking at that time as they're reading this article and saying, and the police haven't done anything, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's an example that we're seeing more and more of um, these really strange cases being broken by journalists, right? in print somewhere so you can read it they can go into a lot of detail that article was like 28 pages and it was fascinating reading i mean they had done they had talked to the different victims and people and people and you know Lawrence's background and 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 so they can go into so much detail and then when you're right you get to the end and you're like wait a minute nobody's looked into this you know it's the same thing with um you know uh Rowan Rowan
1: oh Rowan farrow Rowan who farrow. brought down Harvey Weinstein Yeah.
2: You know, stuff that's been talked about, but, you know, law enforcement, for whatever reason, really isn't getting on it. And then all of a sudden you have it all laid out for everyone to see. And there's this public outcry and law enforcement goes, oh, my goodness, we need to do something. And they said that the investigation they did was instigated by that article on this case.
1: Absolutely. How could you look away? I mean, the, the authorities have been shamed into and being forced into investigating. You can't look away from these allegations. So. There was a woman, one of uh, she's profiled in the article and also she becomes an important part of this case, but she goes from allegedly from going from victim to now possibly being a co-defendant in the case. So in 2013 after graduating, this one of the women spent time with Lawrence in North Carolina in New York, houses in Piscataway and she lived with yet another woman, All of this, according to New York Magazine. All right. So in the original indictment, which was released in February of 2020, Lawrence was the sole defendant at the time, saying that he was the one who had gained control and did all the therapy sessions. All right. Now, the new indictment that was unsealed in January of 2021, just a few months ago, for the first time named this woman, Isabella Pollack. Now, here's what's interesting. She went from being a victim, as I said, to now being a co-defendant with Lawrence. Apparently, he recruited her to join in the criminal scheme. Originally, the New York Times said Isabella was indeed one of the exploited students. So what's unclear is at what point did things change, according to the New York Times. So she's also facing charges of racketeering, extortion, sex trafficking, and... Because this case isn't complicated enough, they're, they're, in court, they've been arguing, is Isabella competent enough to stand trial? And is she still under the influence of this guy? So the judge has ordered a competency yeah. evaluation to figure out what's going on with Isabella. But it doesn't end there. So you, so you got Isabella, who now everyone's trying to figure out what side is she on? Victim, co-defendant, what are you going to do with her? Mm-hmm. But wait. Then there are still women who he apparently has under his spell and that prosecutors didn't want him released because they were afraid that he could still control them. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Okay, now those women, the latest allegations, this is in the New York Times, this is unbelievable. So he's not supposed to have contact with those other women who would be potentially victims and witnesses, correct, against him? Mm -hmm. So he allegedly has been sending secret messages through his own father to get to them. So prosecutors are outraged that even from behind bars, he's still manipulating them. And naturally, prosecutors are worried about their case because if they are going to refute any of the charges and say, no, 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 I wanted to do that. Like, what does that do to the case, Lonnie?
2: Yeah. I mean, if you have the victims on the stand saying, I don't know why you're charging this man. He's the best thing that ever happened in my life. He saved me at a time when I needed him. It makes it very hard for a jury, right? To sit there. And, and some of these students were Harvard graduate, doctor, Columbia graduate. I mean, they're smart, smart people that got caught up in this. And, and so it would be very confusing to a jury. Now, Going back to Isabella for a moment, she was the one who, in the uh, New York Magazine article, was young, had just gotten through a very bad breakup when Lawrence moved into their apartment and said, "I can help you." And then apparently they started a relationship together, and they've been together for years. And in March, right after they, you know, arrested Lawrence and indicted him, you know, she, they, the prosecutors were saying, like you said, she's one of the victims. She's been exploited. She's been abused all of this time. And even now they're saying, is she competent enough to stand trial? Does she understand what's going on? But then they're going to charge her as a, as a you know, aider and a better, a co-conspirator. And this is really murky ground. This is similar to the Keith Rainier. Remember his sex cult anexium And they charged five of the women there also as his co-conspirators. At what point does a victim who's supposedly been brainwashed and had all these horrible things done to them, switch over to where they're, you know, helping. And apparently there's charge that, you know, he helped, she helped him collect the money that, you know, uh, he was making the other people pay him. Um, But is he, she doing that because she's still under his influence, right? Or is she doing it because she knows really, does she have a full awareness of what she's doing? And, and, you know, in these federal prosecutions, sometimes the prosecutors will charge someone like this in the hopes that they will cooperate, right? That they will give testimony for the prosecution. Now they have this sort of hammer hanging over their head. We have these charges against you. You need to now start helping us work with us and, and cooperate. So that might be the reason why they've charged her. I don't know, but it's, it's a very murky situation as far as, you know, when do you decide that that victim has crossed the line now and become a co-conspirator when she's been in this very strange Relationship with this man the entire time that started under really, really bad circumstances.
1: Oh my goodness. It's such an unbelievable case. And I say this an awful lot when we have these cases of like cults and people brainwashing, it always happens among the rich and the educated. Because honestly, poor people don't have time for this nonsense, right? They don't have time and you don't have the money for all this, for these shenanigans. And like, look at this. Look at what has transpired here. It's this is insane, and I just, I'm fascinated. This is like, get the popcorn out. I like, I can't get enough of this case. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, Lawrence Ray and Isabella Pollack have pleaded not guilty, and trial is set to begin on September 20th. Get your popcorn. It is time for our comment section. These are the cases you all are talking about, and Owen and Michael, who monitors our website and all social media, is here to tell us, what are you talking about?
3: Hi, Anna. Hi, Lonnie. Nice to see you guys this week. We have uh, some so a lot of comments about the case that you referenced up top about uh, Charlie Funes, the 13-year-old girl who was attacked during gym class in Illinois. Uh, she and her mother joined Luis Bolaños and Anna Garcia, yourself, of course, last uh, on June 11th. Um, we had a ton of comments about that. Cindy B says, this isn't bullying. This is assault. The perpetrator should be held responsible. So this could set a precedent for other kids. Who think they will be able to get away with doing harm to others? Tanvin G says students will bully. Their parents should be blamed for this, as they are the ones who teach those kids such disgusting manners. And Blue Eight says, "I'm glad Charlie's parents don't teach violence." Uh, we had a lot of lot of input on that one.
1: Oh, it was unbelievable on our YouTube page, Facebook, but YouTube was blowing up with comments. And really, they're, I mean, they're pretty consistent between the sharing of personal experiences. Right. Um, there were some people who were, you know, calling for vengeance. and But Charlie's family, Charlie's mom and dad have stood firm and said, no, that is not what we teach our children. That is not how we deal with problems. We do want justice and consequences for actions. But absolutely, no, we know this girl needs help. We don't want to go after her and her family. That's not right. That's not right. So yeah, there, um, were,
3: there were a lot of people that, uh, you're right, shared over the past 20 or 30 years, people who've been out of school for a long time talking about bullying then versus bullying now, their own experience with their own kids, et cetera, and so forth. So clearly still a, uh, an issue in schools these days.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you know what? The bullying, Lonnie, I think never really ends in life. There's always going to be a bully in your world, sadly, Right.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we can all think back into our childhoods and think at some point where somebody, you know, did something mean to us. And it does, it has an impact on you, you know, how you handle that can make a big difference.
1: Absolutely. Well, Owen, thank you so much for sharing that. We're going to have Charlie and her mom back once finally this case is decided. I'll be very curious to see what happens in juvenile court. And of course, that is not an area where the public is permitted, right? Lonnie, juvenile court is a private matter.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: But I understand that Charlie and or her mom can get permission to attend since they are the victims. Well, she might have to testify, right? So. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Owen. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys. Wow, Lonnie. These cases, amazing this week. Thank you so much for your input. I just, I can't get over it. It's really been all about privilege, power, and access.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how many horrible things can be done in the name of power, privilege, and access, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But at least we leave everyone with a little bit of hope that maybe 13-year-old Charlie is going to get a little justice coming up and that we all had a little part in saying, no, this isn't right. You all have to look at this. So thank you, Lonnie. If people uh, want to catch up with you, I know you're working on a bunch of projects. What are you working on and where can people find you?
2: I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and right now I'm, work, I'm sort of, you know, stirring the pot on things. So uh, nothing really to announce right now, but um, soon, hopefully.
1: Yeah. And of course, uh, so much of the, your work is available on the Oxygen channel. So if anyone needs a fix Alani <laughs> <laughs> Got plenty, plenty of shows there. <laughs> yeah, plenty of shows, and she's working on more. Yeah. Please come back soon. We have missed you. I know you've been busy, so hopefully you'll come back soon. Thank you. I will. Anytime. All right. um, You can find me, Anna G. News, on all social media, Anna with one N. You can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube. Subscribe to our channel. We've got four and a half million subscribers. Also, you can get our newsletter. Uh, You can do that by subscribing at TrueCrimeDaily.com. And Owen will write the newsletter for you. We're very personal around here. (laughs) We tailor everything. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and as we always say, don't do crime.